Welcome to another episode of Threads of Enlightenment. As usual, I'd like to stop right here and thank our guests for coming because I know they're bringing a couple of things I deem very expensive. Liz Bitter, time. Time is one of the most precious commodity given to the human spirit. And how we utilize that 24-hour TikTok, it really is uh, speaks volumes to those who understand the purpose of it. Um, I remember as a young boy reading in church, uh, this scripture says, teach us how to number our days. And so um, that's one who needs to understand time. The other is your journey. It is valuable. It housed who you were, and it created this beautiful spirit that is sitting before me. And so I want to thank you for coming and sharing this journey with us as well. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Uh, introduce yourself to the folks. Tell them everything that you have so far. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. Um, shows. Um, I launched an environmentally friendly clothing brand based on my art, and it comes in plus sizes. Um, but five years ago, I was painting murals as a federal inmate, and so I've had to build my life back from scratch. And I started working with some state representatives in Maine. And we got some very much needed bills passed, you know, for the good of the people. Um, I got my brand and a couple clothing stores and some rural areas. And I'm currently working on getting them um, into a big um, chain store. So I got a little more research to do and figure out how the best way to do that and be successful. But, yeah, I'm working on it. And, yeah, just having a great life. Excellent. That is beautiful. Um, I always tell people that the journey comes for a couple of things, introducing us to ourselves, identifying our gift that we have within us, because we came to this planet with gifts that resides within us. And once we go through our journey, we kind of discover what they are, or they're revealed to us. And then we are able to serve others through it. And you are doing that through your art and all of the things, all the things that you're doing. So walk with us back because we love to engage in this conversation, Elizabeth, that of your family. It is the first um, place by which we reside as human beings. Our family, our mom and dad and all the grandparents and the brothers and sisters, everybody with their trauma, all that wonderful stuff. And we call that family. And as dysfunctional as it is, it is beautiful in some way. So talk to us about your family, what was that unit like? Well, I was adopted um, from birth. My mother was only 17 years old, and my father was fighting um, across seas in Beirut. And so she gave me up for adoption to a couple in Brooklyn, New York. And um, they moved to Maine when I was two, and I pretty much grew up there like my whole life. And I was always surrounded by love and support. I was never exposed to, you know, violence, drugs, abuse, you know, none of that. Um, I struggled with mental health issues a little bit, you know, at my preteen years. And, you know, instead of teaching me coping skills and like figuring, helping me figure myself out, they just pumped me full of, you know, antidepressants yeah. and it yeah. put me in psychosis. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so I struggled with that, but, you know, I was always into art and into music, and I was always one of those, you know, dreamer kids who couldn't get her head out of the clouds. And um, it was, yeah, I was always creative. I was always, you know, off in my own little world. And, yeah. you know, when I got out on my own, um, that's when, you know, things really started to take a darker turn. You know, I'm, I found out I'm high-functioning autistic, so, like, I'm a very blunt person. And, you know, yeah. sar sarcasm, sometimes I don't always catch it with, you know, neurotypical people. Like, yeah. if you say something, I'm expecting that to be what you mean, but there's this whole other underlying meaning, and it took me a long time to, you know, figure myself out. And, you know, I like, this country has, you know, the wrong attitude towards, you know, mental health and, you know, the stigma behind it. They, they teach you that there's something wrong with you and there's something broken about you, but, you know, you yeah. can actually, you know, once you figure it out, yes, you're going to struggle some ways, but you're going to have all these other superpowers that nobody else has. Yeah. I mean, the, the brain moves like 40% faster, you know, 
That's incredible. Like you can do some incredible stuff with that. You just have to learn how to work with it and channel it and stop believing all these stigmas that society wants you to believe because you know you don't necessarily fit into their box of what's normal and okay. Yeah, and that's so, I tell people that fence um, that they tell us normal is the fence by which they keep you and I obedient to their program. Yeah. And once we are outside of normal or the sphere of normal, they uh, do things to you as uh, you uh, can attest to. The medication, one of the things is to dumb you down because they don't want you to, they want to be bothered with you. Um, those are some of the terms. And they don't want you to grow in your spiritual yes. gifts either. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I was, I would have these dreams where I was always flying and I was always going somewhere. And whenever I woke up as a kid, I would feel like, I never got to sleep. I have, I have more stuff to do. Like, because I would remember the dream. And, you know, I started having these supernatural experiences that I didn't understand. And, you know, in prison, there was, like, a really defining situation. Um, I'll get to that in a little bit. But, you know, the beginning of my, you know, spiritual awakening was, you know, my, um, in my 20s, I was dating a very abusive man who, you know, the first time he assaulted me, I was in the hospital with my skull showing, and um, the brain damage was so bad, um, I would get seizures and, you know, fall on the ground and, you know, be passed out and not know how long I was out for, and my daughter was only 14 months old, and she was, like, running around, I'd wake up and she was running around, and I'm like, she's not safe with me, like, and there's nothing I can do about it, because it's brain damage, and the doctors are like, oh, well, this could be permanent, or this could, you know, clear up, you know, we don't really know. And the other thing was that they pumped me full of opiates, and I found out I was pregnant that day with my son, and I tried to refuse, and <laughs> they told me that because I was pregnant, and because my blood pressure kept skyrocketing from the amount of pain I was in, that that would result in a call to CPS for refusing medical advice, and that's Child Protective Services. So they literally threatened me to send, you know, DCFS or CPS, whichever one it is now, and um, take my kids from me if I didn't, you know, take these very highly addictive drugs. And they also told me that I was on too small of a dose to get addicted. And, you know, we know now, 15, 16 years later, that Big Pharma was just out to get profit off of the suffering yeah. of the American people. You know, half the people that were born in 1986, like me, are gone from drugs. Like, there's more people in the older generation than there is in the millennial generation, because it killed so many of us off. And, you know, I went to Spruce Run, the battered women's shelter eventually, and they turned me away with two beds open. They said that my situation was too severe and my injuries were too extensive and it put the other women in the shelter in danger. So, the girl that got the bed didn't even get hit. The guy kicked her car, and that's absolutely domestic violence, you know, destroying property. But compared to my situation where I would have been dead if I hadn't gone to the hospital, and you're going to turn me away because my injuries are too extensive. Well, I had made it. I was 21. 21? I was 21 when I wow. finally, or no, I might have been 22 when I finally went and got away from him. But, um,. I, yeah, after that, it was like rock bottom, because I made a deal with my father, if um, they wouldn't help me, I would sign temporary guardianship to my children over, because, you know, if my ex showed up and tried to take them with the cops, my dad would have to hand my son over, and then he'd be, you know, in the care of a psychopath, and um, so I had to put them first, and, you know, the trauma from everything he had done to me, like, he used to trap me in the bathroom and torture me for hours, like, it hardened me so much to the point where, like, I wasn't scared to die. I wasn't backing down. I'd fight anybody, whether I was going to win or lose. And, you know, like, the next man that tried to put his hands on me, he's the one that went, went to the hospital. Like, I had become this completely different person who was running on trauma and adrenaline and, you know, just coating the pain over with anger and rage because I couldn't handle, you know, the emotions underneath. And, um, I worked my way up the chain because I was, like, so hardened and, you know, such a little badass at that point. Like, I just kept moving up the chain with more and more dangerous people. 
and you know the stakes keep getting higher and the situations kept getting more and more dangerous and then eventually in 2011 I went to jail for drugs and that was um sobering for me because you know I finally like woke up and realized what I was doing like yes I was sick I was addicted I was desperate I was scared but now I was profiting off of people's addictions and misery and pain and that's not what I wanted to be you know like big farm is like breaking in trillions and I was like well shit if they can do it you know why can't I like I'm, I'm like running for my life here like what is their excuse for selling this stuff and you know like the guilt kind of all hit me at once and I realized like I knew a bunch of people who I was selling to and they all lost their kids to the state like that was you know the defining moment for me like that woke me up out of this and um when i went to jail i got to see all of the horrible things going on in america like i grew up in maine it's like 94 percent white people up there like we don't see what goes on with the racism outside of the state like i grew up thinking that like the civil rights movement happened and then prejudice and racism was over like i had no idea the systemic oppression in this country until i went to prison and saw it for myself and then i'm meeting women of color who were sterilized against their will and this was before trump filled up the ice camps and was sterilizing refugee women these were american women they were doing this to and not a single one of them was white and now all of a sudden with overturning the roe v wade it's a great day for white lives and it's like man like i don't know if people don't see all this you know happening i mean my first week at somerset county i witnessed an entire pod of women get stripped because a male sergeant wanted a list of who shaved their vaginas and who didn't those that did were punished like that's what sex traffickers do like i don't like and people here inmate oh she's been to jail well she automatically deserves everything she gets then like just say you're okay with cops being predators like when i got out of prison i literally had conservative women telling me if you don't want to get raped by cops don't get arrested and go to jail like this is not what America is supposed to stand for. We're supposed to be the land of the free and everybody's equal and everybody's, you know, all that. And instead, we have the highest rate of incarceration. We make up 25% of the global incarceration population. And we're 5% of the world. Yeah. Like, we have more people in prison than entire continents. And, you know, I couldn't figure out why for the longest time. Like, why would they do this? Why would they lock everybody up? And then when I got to prison, exactly like i didn't see like the cracks in the system until i was like up close and had my face shoved in it but yeah like you said money it's all about a free workforce we work 40 hours a week for five dollars and 25 cents a month these corporations don't even want to pay people a minimum wage we're up to 29 empty properties for every homeless man woman and child in america like this is a dystopian nightmare and a hospital saves $350,000 a year contracting their women to be washed by inmates instead of regular people. Yeah. Like, it's bad in there. I watched a woman go into labor, and when they, they took, we threatened a riot. The only reason they took her to the hospital is because all of us flipped out and were like, dude, you're not letting that baby be born in a cell. So they didn't want 30 women flipping out about this. So they literally told the lady, if this is a false alarm, you're going in the hole. Wow. That's amazing. For those of you who have had kids, you know, Braxton Hicks, false labors, anything. And these women are getting punished if it's a false alarm. Like, this is barbaric. I mean, this should not be happening. I mean, and the juvenile centers are even worse because they're children they're demonized as juveniles they love to use these words to rebrand these groups of people to make them you know to make you have less compassion for them like calling you know kids who are in jail juveniles those are children yeah they need help and you know i keep hearing this oh we need to have you know armed vets in every school to stop mass shootings like yeah you've done that You've had a cop in school, and you didn't stop a single shooting, and you just sent a bunch of black kids to to juvenile centers where they're getting raped because predators flock to these to these institutions because they know these kids are juveniles. They're not going to be believed. They've already screwed up. 
So their word doesn't hold any weight. And these predators flock to these institutions. And then you have judges getting, you know, paid a certain amount of money for every in, for every child they send to one of these institutions. When I was at Cumberland County, they would send juveniles over to us from um, Long Creek. Every couple of years, Long Creek has horrible allegations against them. They're in the paper for breaking kids' arms, for hospitalizing one, for kids committing suicide. Well, they brought this one 17-year-old girl with us after she snapped and stabbed one of the COs. She got tired of getting raped repeatedly by high-ranking officers. Everybody knew about it, and the other staff was too scared to do anything. So they're not reporting for these children and on their behalf. So they brought her with us, the adults, and then just to terrorize her even more, they told her on Christmas Eve that she was going back into the custody of her abusers for her last two weeks. She slit her throat that night. You know, that, that's, what, that's better than going to some of these institutions. You know, these institutions cannot continue to keep doing their own investigations because this is how they're bearing the abuse. Um, when I was at Somerset County, they had um, illegal cameras inside the SMU cells. So they forced me to strip in front of these cameras under duress of being maced and extracted. Now, when you get extracted, they show up 12 deep, all in SWAT gear. You know, they have electric shock shields, rubber bullets. Um, they have these canisters of gas that are chemically designed to seek the oxygen out of your throat. So you can't breathe. And if they hit one cell, it hits all of us. So all the inmates that weren't even doing anything, mm -hmm. they're getting traumatized because one person didn't do what they wanted. And it's usually over something petty. I have, I've watched them break a girl's arm, like popped her collarbone right out because she asked, why are you bringing me to Max? What am I getting written up for? That's all it takes. And these people use extreme violence on you. So when I got to Alderson Federal Prison, when I finally got sentenced, um, I filed a PREA complaint against Somerset County. That stands for Prison Rape Elimination Act. And basically anything sexual of a sexual nature, it goes under PREA. <laughs> well, Somerset County, this is how they're bearing the abuse too. They admitted to everything I was complaining about and then they just deemed it unfounded. Like, yeah, we did it, so what? That's basically what they wrote. And so if they, when they deem it unfounded, it doesn't go any higher. So these institutions just get to do their own investigation, and then that's it. So when Alderson got it back, when they got the response back, they wouldn't even allow me to hold it, to read it myself. They read me the results and then told me I couldn't have a copy and that I couldn't send it home and that I just simply couldn't have it. And... Like, imagine filling out paperwork on the outside or, you know, a complaint and then telling you you can't have a copy of it. Yeah. It wouldn't happen. Yeah. That would never happen. But it does to women in prison because they want to bear the abuse. They want to continue sex trafficking us, abusing us, raping us, and getting away with it. And then after I got out, the captain, Captain Grimes at Alderson, y'all can go Google that, and four of his subordinates all got convicted of raping and stalking inmates and tampering with PREA evidence. I went to the Freedom of Information Act, and they could not find this complaint. And I've requested um, a copy, and a copy of my medical records, too, because, mm -hmm. you know, that's the other thing. They don't want to give you your medical records, and inmates that have been in there for a year, like, that's a problem. People need their medical records. And so I requested it again. They told me to subpoena this complaint. I'm like, subpoena it? Really? By law, you have to give it to me. And you're telling me to subpoena it and get a lawyer. Because there's absolutely no consequence for them if they don't. By law, they have to give it to me, but nothing happens if, if they don't. So this yeah, is one of the yeah. bills. Yeah, this is one of the bills that I'm working on with um, main state representatives. And they're, they're trying to figure out the best wording. But... These institutions need to be held accountable for every day they stonewall an inmate on their paperwork. Like $500 a day or something. Like if you're just going to simply refuse to follow the law, then there needs to be a consequence for when you do. Because Lord yeah. knows you all love to enforce the law. 
and take it way too far. I mean, they they've killed so many inmates at Somerset County. I mean, every couple months, it's another inmate dead, and it never, you know, there's never any justice because nobody cares. It's an inmate. Oh, and most a, most people are nonviolent. Like seventy yeah. percent of the women in prison in America have mm -hmm. some sort of domestic violence or you know sexual assault trauma in their background. You know we're the women who are slipping through the cracks. And you know what happened to me at the shelter. You know the victim shelters. That's a very big problem in America too. A friend of mine was sex trafficked, and she was trying to get in the human trafficking shelter. They wouldn't allow her, they wouldn't let her come in unless if she had, unless if she testified against her pimp, who knew where her mother was, who had a whole network of dangerous people, he had her social security card, her, her IDs, her, her, all of that. And in order for her to get help, she has to do law enforcement's job for them. That's disgusting. Like, you're, you're extorting victims by doing that. And, um... How did you, how, and, and how did this trauma, Elizabeth, because that is, that is uh, such deep abuse, mentally, physically, all of that. How did you manage yourself within that sphere? What, what, I know you told me that uh, when you were being abused that you had changed, you had made some decisions and so forth, but what started to happen to you? while you were exposed to all of that type of... I stopped wow. having empathy for people. Yeah. I stopped having empathy for people. I couldn't feel joy. I couldn't feel compassion. I couldn't, you know, I just felt rage and disgust and anger. And, you know, it's like it wasn't safe for me to feel helpless and scared. So my brain would just shut it off and, you know, turn it into anger because I, I could handle anger. You know, mm -hmm. there's power in anger. Anger is, you know, that, you know, that shield you can hide behind. And it's not going to make you look vulnerable. It's not going to make you look, you know, like a target. And, yeah. but yeah, like, honestly, in prison, I went through a phase where I was, like, freaking out thinking I was a sociopath because of all this. And I, I think it was, I called home one day and found out somebody overdosed. And I was like, I don't care. They're a horrible person. Like, I don't care. And then I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I'm a monster. Like, I felt horrible. Like, I was more worried. Like, I felt more horrible about the fact that I couldn't feel anything, you know, yeah. compassion-wise. And, you know, I wasn't a sociopath. I was just so traumatized. Like, it wasn't safe for me to feel empathy. It wasn't, you know, once I, like, unpacked all that, you know, when I was finally in you know, a situation where I wasn't being traumatized, you can't get better in an environment that's making you sick. You have to have, yeah. you know, peace, and then it's not even going to feel like peace because you're you're so used to the fight or flight thing. And, you know, honestly, for a lot of years, it was like I would subconsciously get myself into more chaos because it was that wait, it was that period, like waiting for the other shoe to drop was yeah. way worse than being in the midst of chaos. And it's just, yeah, just like waiting for, you know, that to hit the fan. Like, no, man, I don't, I don't want to sit with that. And, you know, it took me a long time to figure that out. And, um, How, yeah. Where did you move, where did you find your peace, Elizabeth? Where, wow, where did you find your peace within all of that? Because you said well, you... I'm, I'm still trying to find it. I'm still, I still have days where I, I have a really hard time finding it, but you know, I started to meditate and I did, um, well, I really lucked out when I got out of prison because Janet Mills took over for Paula Page and she expanded mm -hmm. main care. So now I could get health insurance and I was continuing treatment. I was going to trauma therapy. You know, I was doing all these things that, you know, actually help me instead of just trying to self-medicate because I couldn't, I had no way of paying to go to the doctor. Yeah. And, you know, universal healthcare just needs to be a basic human right, just like housing and everything else. But instead, yeah. you know, we, we have this nightmare going on in the United right. States. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and now we have yeah. like 29 empty properties for every homeless person. Like this is yeah. disgusting. And 
Oh, over the pandemic, all of these jails across America were um, taking out PPP loans to expand their um, jails to um, like add more beds on and um, build it. Get out of here. Sorry. That's okay. We got a whole bunch of rescues here, so kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. What was I saying? Completely. No, no. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the PPP loans. Yeah. Yeah. So they they were adding a whole bunch of wings on and everything else. Um, just you know, just so they could you know get more beds. And um, yeah. Meanwhile, that you know that money should have gone to the people, but you know they're they're shooting for this whole you know homeless thing, and uh criminalizing it because you know in a lot of cities now you can't even feed the homeless people without getting fined you know they made everybody homeless during the pandemic and now they're criminalizing homelessness so pretty soon they're just going to be locking everybody up and putting them to work for you know a free workforce and i love these people who are like oh you get free medical care in prison like dude i have watched so many women die of very treatable things like one one girl uh, broke her foot shoveling the snow. That was her job for like five dollars and twenty five cents a month. She breaks her foot slipping on the ice. By the time they brought her to the hospital, the bone had fused back together, and they had to re-break her leg. Like, there's no need for that whatsoever. Like, you're letting this sh kind of thing happen to people. I mean, I've watched inmates perform minor surgeries on themselves because they cannot get any help from medical. And the other thing about prison doctors is legally they're allowed to have lost their medical license and still work at a prison. So they can have a malpractice suit going on and be, you know, performing, you know, medical procedures on inmates. And then we wonder why so many inmates are getting neglected and so many people are dying in prison of very treatable things. And, you know, I've, I've watched so many, you know, couple year prison bids turn into a death sentence because these people simply did not want to, you know, have basic empathy and get somebody, you know, medical care in an emergency. Like, it, it was terrible to watch. And there's nothing you can do as an inmate. If you say anything to them, they'll use violence against you. Wow. That is a powerful uh, life to, to, to witness and to see and to be a part of that. And uh, you mentioned um, that uh, uh, you moved from prison. What was it that caused you to be moved from there? Was it because you had served your time, or what was that condition like that moved you through and moved you forward? Because well, um, we'll, we'll get back to, to, to what you were talking about, because it is a, it's a powerful story that um, the politicians need to be aware of it, and this is just one location that you're talking about and there's so many of them all throughout yeah. the states and, um, that are just and they're, they're all bad and, uh, uh, they're all corrupt yeah um well yeah. so in, in, you, what was it that moved you forward Elizabeth? well um in maine there are no federal prisons so they had me in county mm -hmm until I got sentenced. So I, and the feds take their sweet time. Like you, you can, you know, have your right to a quick and speedy trial, but you're probably going to get smoked for, you know, exercising that right. You know, and it, with the feds too, yeah. if you take them to trial, they will hold you to the maximum sentence. They can, you know, even if you're not that guilty, like, they will hold you, hold it against you for, you know, exercising your constitutional right. You literally get punished with way more time for exercising your constitutional right. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's disgusting. Like, if, if you lose in trial, you should not automatically get maximum sentence. Like, you're literally getting punished. Like, why do you have a constitution then if the people are just going to keep being punished for exercising, you know, their basic constitutional rights? Um... Oh, here's another <laughs> scam that um, I'm sure the American taxpayers listening to this are really going to like. So when you first show up to prison, it's mandatory that if you haven't graduated high school or taken a GED, to enroll in the GED. That's great. 
if you actually haven't graduated high school. But what was happening is they were getting two grand for every inmate that was enrolled, and then another two grand when they graduated. So inmates have no way of getting anything for themselves. We can't even get our own tampons because we don't have access to a store. We don't have access to phone books. We don't have access to computers, internet, anything like that. They tell the inmates, you have 60 days to bring us your high school transcripts, or you're going to take the GED. And if you refuse, then you're going to lose good time and go to, and go to the shoe, which is solitary confinement. So, um, they're supposed to get it for you, but they don't, um, because they're getting so much money having people enrolled in the GED. So we had women with bachelor's degrees and doctorates and PhDs taking the GED, and then they cut corners again and have the, the inmates with college degrees teach the inmates who actually needed the GED. So this is just like one big money pit. Like you do not need to be getting $2,000 for every inmate who unnecessarily takes the GED. Like it's free money to them. It's, it's disgusting. And that's just like one of many money pits that the prison system is. We have more, we have more prisons than we do colleges. Like this is supposed to be the land of the free. Like stop gaslighting us with that nonsense. It, you have bypassed slavery laws you know, with your mass incarceration, and you are just profiting off of the suffering of the American people, from the medical mafia to the insurance companies to, you know, colleges and, and the rape culture. Like, I mean, you know, this is, like, not what America is supposed to be. It's not, it's not what it's supposed to be at all. Yeah, I, I can attest to that. I, um, my family and I, we had some issues with um, how they treated my family. Uh, uh, they, yeah, it's, it was interesting to go through to see the effect and the trauma that it caused my children, um, young boys that are growing up in, a, uh, in America. So, um, yeah, it's a painful place as much as people want to get there. It is a painful place for yeah. some of the things that are happening behind the scenes, if you will. So, um, yeah. we were moving you forward, the, uh, um, the, Elizabeth. Yeah, Go ahead, the Claire. rehabs, the rehabs have a 94% failure rate, and they yeah. when they kick somebody out, it's $30,000, no refund. They're kicking people out over very petty reasons. A friend of mine, his nephew was in rehab and they have a petty rule like you can't drink coffee in certain areas of the building at certain times well he got caught doing it and they kicked him mm. out for it he got out and overdosed like you wouldn't kick a cancer patient out of you know a rehabilitation center but you're doing it to addicts and you know just taking their money it's more free money it's literally suffering profiting yeah. off the suffering of the american people like yeah like all these institutions need yeah, to be you know yeah, they're not going to do anything um, substantial because there's just too much money in it. And uh, the guys are, who should be overseeing it, they have the kickbacks. I can tell you stories, and just like you're telling a ton of them. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I know some of them as well. Because I had a lot of friends that were lawyers and judges and cops and all this kind of stuff. And I... Um, you know, I, I was one of those guys who wore a suit, and my friend, who was one of the top boys in the United States in Florida, would tell me, he says, Ken, stay off the streets. Tell your boys to stay off the streets because they're coming after um, all the black young men. And so I would have to relay that message to my boys to stay off the streets in Orlando because they were just coming for us. Just for every reason, they're just coming and grabbing you because um, that was their schedule time and so forth so as you're moving through elizabeth and you're going through your life and you are now moved into this area where you have a little breather if you will mm -hmm. what began to happen to you as you um were uh, afforded this little um sabbatical if you will from all of that darkness that you were uh, part of as you moved through that what began to happen to you because you were talking about how you became cold, anger, and all those things that we're using. Yeah. You're seeking therapy. You are 
um, you talked about meditation. How did all of these different things started to assist you, to help you to um, change your perspective about uh, yourself? Well, I mean, I, I could finally, like, feel emotions again, like, other than just, like, the anger and the, you know, everything I was masking it with. Like, I started to really, like, process everything that was underneath. And, like, honest, and the other thing was that I, they, the feds had me on lithium, and it stopped filtering through my kidneys properly. So I went into, like, full-blown psychosis at one point when I got out. And it was a very long process, like, having that, med getting that medication, like, fully out of my system. So, I mean, when, like, all those emotions and all those traumas really started to, like, come through and, like, I really started to, like, process them after just, like, burying them for, you know, the last, I don't know, 10 years, it was very overwhelming and I felt like I was having a psychotic break, basically. Like, it, like, I felt like it destroyed me, but at the same time, like, once I got through it, I was, you know, I was better, and I was like, okay, well, I, I can be sad now, and, like, that's okay, and, like, I'm safe to do that, and, you yeah. know, I, I can unpack this and not just, you know, react to every little trigger and, you know, be at risk of going to jail or being at risk of getting an assault charge or, you know, anything like that. Like, I wasn't you know, just reacting the same way that I was, and, you know, I was doing, yeah. when I when I was in prison, my first experience with a banned book, because they're banning everything now, um, my first experience was um, a friend of mine tried to order the banned books of the Bible, like the Gospel of Judas, you know, the Book of Enoch, and all that stuff, yeah. well, the jail won't let her have it, and so naturally, I'm I, I got out and read all of them because I was like, I have to know why. And, you know, I found this whole yeah. other side of the story and I was just completely <laughs> blown away and, like, baffled by, like, how amazing, you know, the Christ conscious really is and how powerful he truly is. And, you know, I started, like, accepting myself more and, um, you know, really just kind of, like, embracing, like, my spiritual gifts and, you know... I had a psychic tell me, you're an empath, like, you don't have mental health problems, you're a witch and an empath, and you need to get your energy fixed, and once I actually got Reiki done, and, like, my energy, energy work done, I felt amazing, and, like, I, I had this really, like, profound supernatural experience in prison that just, like, all the other ones, like, I would, you know, try to be, like, you know, find, you know, justifications for it or, you know, like, the reason behind it. And I wouldn't, like, I would just disregard it as, you know, a mundane experience. And when I was in prison, it was Thanksgiving, and I started having dreams about an old friend of mine. And we were, like, in the South, fighting our way through this house. And, like, in one room, like, plants came to life. And, you know, the next room, we had to fight something else. I had dreams about him for three days in a row. And on the third night, we were in the car, and we were talking, and we were having a good time. And we were just reminiscing about the good times. And then we got to that same house from the first night. And there was a triple road. And he's looking off in the distance, and he's, like, looking at this mist. And I looked at him, I'm like, you can't stay here. It's time for you to go. That's Canada. Like, that's where you got to go. Like, you know, I was kind of, like, processing it. Like, he was on the run yeah. from the feds, and I had to get him, you know, it was, you know how, like, your brain, like, processes these things. Yeah. So I watched him go into the mist, and I never had a dream of him again. Well, Christmas, I called home, and I found out he died horribly on Thanksgiving. Like, had to get life-flighted, like, got hit by a car, his chest was, wow. cavity was open. Like, it was horrible. And so, like, I had no way of knowing this, you know, until, like, way after the fact. And, like, I had these dreams of, like, watching him, like, cross over. And then when I got out, my friend Julia, who's, like, really sensitive, you know, empathic and everything, she goes, dude, it was crazy. Like, I can always feel spirits, like, right after they pass. I couldn't feel him anywhere. He was just gone. And it was like, it came out of my mouth, like, before I even, like, thought about it. And I, I, I just said, I like, yeah, I know, I watched him go. And um, I also wow. found out that his 
he he's his girl found out that she was pregnant after he died and that she named her Nevaeh. And he was there when my daughter was born, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And her name was Nevaeh too. Yeah. So there were all these like wow. synchronicities and, you know, just like, I was like, that was definitely a supernatural experience where I was actual projecting mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it was. And so, like, I really kind of, like, started yeah. to accept that instead of just being, like, oh, I'm mental, mental health crisis and, you know, I'm just, you know, weird and I'm never going to fit in. Like, I stopped caring about that. Like, I'm okay with who I am. I'm not trying yeah. to fit in with all of these people who just follow the crowd and, you know, can't think for themselves. Like, I don't need to be so surrounded when you, by when people. You got that up yeah, when you got that opportunity um, uh, that you began to um, allow yourself, if you will, allow yourself to feel emotions and so forth in your life, and um, you had mentioned that you started to feel safe to be able to express that. What was it doing to you, Elizabeth? What were those inner experiences as you were feeling safe? What did that look like to this woman that had never truly been safe um, from I felt a like I was a young relationship? <laughs> yeah. I felt like I was falling apart yeah. and I was like, it was like total dark night of the soul. Like, I really didn't come out of my house. It was like yeah. a long process for me to like you know, even just, like, come back out into, you know, the community and, you know, become involved and, you know, all that stuff. Like, I literally, like, when I first got out of prison on probation, um, I'd have panic attacks every time I left my house. And, you know, it didn't help that the prison had me on $1,300 worth of psych meds that I had no way of paying for. And th this is an issue, too. Like, they get, they get people all hooked on these, you know, meds when they're in prison. They give you a month's supply, and they say, good luck, have fun when you get out, and then you have no way to pay for it. And a lot of these psych meds are really dangerous if you just stop taking them. Like with lithium, your heart can stop. You know, you will go into full-blown detox, and it can kill you. Like, this is not a joke. And these, I hate how these doctors just hand out these drugs so, you know, freely without really, you know, spending time with the patient. Like, you just spent 10 minutes with me, like, and you want to give me these psych meds? Like, this is not, this is not helping. And so, yeah. needless to say, I went back. I didn't even last six months on probation. Like, I just fell apart and relapsed and went back. And when I was at Danbury, I painted murals. Um, they paid me $57 a month. That was, like, the most high-paying job at the prison. Um painting murals and I would also paint cups and you know portraits and other little things for you know the inmates and yeah that's yeah. Like how I got by made money and then when I got out you know I started having um I started talking to downtown um businesses in Bangor and I had a couple art shows and then I joined the Bangor Art Society and I started doing shows with them and yeah. then I found the Galleriste um that Canadian uh, women's clothing brand, they take, they, you, as an artist, you can sign up with Le Galleries and turn all of your art into environmentally friendly clo clothes for women. And they come in plus size, it's very inclusive, which, you know, I'm happy about. Um, but, you know, it makes these really yeah. beautiful, you know, well made clothes. I got some stuff to show you. Like, this is one of my bags, the horse. Yeah. Um, and you can, yeah, that's beautiful. you have, um, you can look at the tags and see the entire, um, painting on there. You can also go on the website mm -hmm. and see like all my paintings as well. This is a placemat. Like there's really something yeah. for everybody. Like one day I'll be like super gothic yeah. and then like the next day I'll be like painting rainbows and butterflies. So, I mean, you will find like <laughs> a wide you know, variety of stuff. Like, yeah. this is going to be really good for summer. The koi fish. And I also mm -hmm. do stuff, like, with the koi fish, I'll put in, like, um, 
scales of gold to like draw on abundance and wealth and you know help you manifest yeah, and really, yeah. you know all that stuff um yeah so this is a provide all of that for them that is beautiful uh yeah. we're gonna provide all of you guys that are listening to um elizabeth's uh, powerful journey uh, we will provide all of that information so that you can have access to the artwork and i want you guys to go and support her by uh, purchasing her artwork and um and following her because uh, this woman i think she's just beginning and um i think she's in the beginning stage of her uh, mission on this planet and so uh, but i want you guys to support her purchase your stuff her stuff give it to friends for gifts and so forth uh, so that you can uh, be a part of her life and and uh, she has a powerful story man so here you are um what you, you've gone in you came out you all of those things elizabeth mm -hmm. what happened to cause you to head towards the um, political uh, arena to then go and start uh demanding and making your demands known uh, or your request, if you will. Uh, so that was not planned. That was not planned. be more of a demand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, talk to I, us I, a little about that. It was not planned. And if you had told me five years ago that I was doing anything political, I would have suggested, you know, the closest, you know, mental health clinic. But um, basically, there was a cop in Callis, Maine, and he gave drugs to this high school girl who was supposed to give it to her mother, who was paying for these drugs by sexually gratifying the cop. Well, they got busted. Um, mm. They both got drug charges. And I called the DA, the DA up, and I was like, why aren't you charging him with a sex crime? He's a cop of 30 years. He's well-versed in addiction, and he was extorting this woman for her mental health and addiction issues. As a woman who's been to prison, the only thing I'm thinking if a cop hits on me, is what am I going to jail for when I say no? Because that is what usually yeah. happens. Yeah. And, um, yeah, especially right. with, you know, black and brown women, it's how dare you say no to me? You know, that's really the attitude that, you know, a lot of these officers and, you know, men will get with them. And it's just horrible to watch. Um, but, yeah, basically, he told me, he was like, well, the way the law is written, it's consent. But you've made a lot of really good points because, you know, your position and what you've been through that I had never even thought about. So what you can do is write to your main state representatives slash legislatures, and this is how you can get bills passed. So that's what I started doing. I also started showing up at, like, democratic meetings and just telling them what they were doing wrong. And I would come up with statistics mm -hmm. and, you know, my my story and you know stuff i had seen and they all started listening to me so um we got one bill passed um that main jails um are required to provide tampons and pads free of charge for women and yes that is a problem women will literally make their own tampons and make themselves sick because they're that desperate wow. and you know they're in all jails, bare minimum, there is pads, but sometimes they don't. And I've literally watched female officers, you know, tell women, oh, well, go ahead and bleed on yourselves. What do I care? Like, sociopathic behavior from these officers. Like, and just to do that to another woman as a woman, like, I was just floored. So the, the game became, go up to the biggest, baddest male inmate, I mean, male officer, and make him feel as uncomfortable as possible. So, you know, that would look like, you know, well, what do you expect us to do? Because we're going to start bleeding on everything because we have nothing. We can't go get the stuff for ourselves. Like, make them feel as grossed out yeah. and uncomfortable as possible. And then we'll go get more than enough for everybody. Because they don't want to deal with bleeding women. Wow. And that's what you get reduced yeah. to. That's what you have to do just to take care of yourself there. And so... Maine passed that law, and now, then the only other time you can buy tampons is on commissary, and they will jack the price up, you know, triple what they cost out here. Like a package of ramen noodles out here costs twenty cents. It costs a dollar fifty in there. 
So they're extorting people that way by, you know, just jacking prices up and making them so unaffordable. Like, you have to buy it because that's your only place to shop. So they know that, and they know you're going to buy it because you don't have another option. And it's just, you know, it's extortion. It really is. Um, oh, the other one was, um, like I said, we had 29 empty uh, properties for every homeless man, woman, and child. That was three before the pandemic. Well, what these greedy landlords were doing um, in Maine is they were charging these application and processing fees for an apartment. But they were getting like 10 in one week per month and getting triple the rent. And so they weren't actually renting the apartments. They were just collecting application fees and processing fees and basically ripping people off. So it, 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 the homeless yeah. problem exploded up there. And I went to city hall meetings and I'm like, this is why. This is what you need to do. This is, this is what you need to put an end to. And so they passed the bill um, saying that landlords can only charge an application fee or any fee if a lease is signed. And you know what? That's fair. Yeah. Like, you cannot keep yeah. doing this yeah. to people. So yeah, that's kind of yeah, how I. Story, Elizabeth. <laughs> I got some more and more. Yeah, that's, on, that's but, an uh, incredible story. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you are the right person for it because of your experience and um, your empathy that you have uh, for those that are there. And um, I don't think they could have had a better fighter on their behalf than you. And so. Um, I will, uh, you know, uh, anything you need from us here at Fresno Light Connect. Those of you guys that are listening to this powerful story, I want you, I'm going to provide everything for you to have access to Elizabeth and find a way to join her, to support her, also to buy her art and so forth, and uh, uh, so that you can welcome her uh, into the Fresno Light Connect family. Uh, I want to thank you so much. Um, Elizabeth coming to us and I know you have just even started on your story and we've already clocked in an hour so uh, we have to bring you back so that we can uh, delve into much more of your adventures as you're going through dealing with politics side and what you're doing on that side and so I want to again thank you for coming to President Lightman. Thank you for having me. Pleasure.